As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the new statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about the HBO series Sharp Objects and the Netflix original animated series Disenchantment. We've also watched the 2010 film Beginners for the first time thanks to a listener recommendation, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to Seriously. I feel like, I mean, I've got a little thing in my throat. Have you? I feel like I've got something going on back here. So I'm sorry if I sound weird. Oh, yeah. Listeners. I'm still getting over my cold from the previous episode two weeks yeah. ago. So yeah, if we're croaking at you, we're sorry. <laughs> sickly women, sickly ladies. Um, I have just got back from a week-long holiday in Sicily, so I should be all like rejuvenated and, you know, I don't know, brown and sweet, but I just feel a little bit like coming back to autumn which was a shock uh mm. it's kind of drained me a little bit but autumn is great for culture lovers isn't it because there's always so much good new tv and film to be seen or it's also it's kind of terrible for culture lovers depending on which way you look at it because who has time to keep going out to you know the cinema and keep downloading new tv shows that's true but i am very excited for instance that killing eve has finally got a uk air date oh my god yes we're gonna talk about that so hard <laughs> i know um and also stuff like you know america sort of traditional american network shows always come back in the autumn um so yeah i've mentioned this before but i'm really excited for the next series of the good place which i think is starting end of september like lots of that kind of fall stuff is coming yeah, I actually I don't actually know when the new Jane the Virgin series is coming, but I think that actually might be delayed a bit longer. But yeah, I'm hyped. I also saw my first like big picture of the next kind of year cycle. I saw a screening of First Man, oh, the, the new Damien Chazelle, Damien Chazelle, film Chazelle yeah, the, the other day. Yeah, with Ryan Gosling as Neil Armstrong, 
So that's when I'm like, oh, yeah, we're getting back into watching movies. Though I imagine that will probably have like a February 2019 release date in the UK or something ridiculous as they all do. But yes, well, I've been enjoying a friend of the show, Simran Hans, has been at the um, Toronto International Film Festival, I think, for her main job as a film critic at The Observer. And so I've been enjoying seeing her like tweeting and Instagramming about like all of the big, serious, important movies that we Mm. are all going to have to pay attention Mm. to in the next awards cycle and stuff. Yeah. And it was Venice the week before, Mm. which I think someone's going to tell me I'm wrong now, but I think that was the first la la land screening a couple of years ago or whatever so often like yes me, i think you're right yeah the best picture almost winner in that case <laughs> you know or things like that start to trickle down but yeah not for us mere mortals yes absolutely and especially us mere mortals in the uk anyway where... we're just like rambling about nothing now aren't we <laughs> yeah we are um, let's get on with it so what are we going to talk about first this week the first thing that we're going to talk about this week, Caroline, is Sharp Objects, an eight-episode TV adaptation of Gillian Flynn's novel of the same name. It stars Amy Adams as Camille Preaker, a crime reporter in St. Louis in the American Midwest, who's sent back to her hometown of Wingap, Missouri, to report on the disappearance of two girls. In the course of her investigation, she uncovers uncomfortable truths about the town and also her own family. Before we start talking about sharp objects, I know that we're rambling too much already this episode, but I have been thinking for the last couple of days, you know how I think this is always really overblown, but you know how they always say, oh, Charles Dickens was like the EastEnders of his day. Mm-hmm. If, which is if like, Shakespeare was alive today, he'd be writing for HBO. <laughs> yeah, stuff the like that. The New Statesman actually literally once published an article with that title. Right, right. Sorry, this is a really roundabout point. Yours was more succinct, but... I have been thinking about Gone Girl a lot mm-hmm. lately and how I actually think that though, although Gone Girl was like very much marketed as a commercial thriller mm. and obviously was a commercial thriller and was you know, a bestseller and it did get really good reviews. It, it also like didn't get nominated for any big prizes or anything like that because it was a commercial piece of like a commercial thriller. And I also first read Gone Girl and kind of like hated it and had like a really strong like quite negative reaction to it but I've started to think that I think maybe Gone Girl might be the like in 20 years time because like distance always gives you Mm. on like crime stuff it makes it seem a bit more literary like Agatha Christie who I know you're a big lover of is seen as more literary than she possibly was when she was first publishing now is that true or not Uh, I think that's definitely true yeah like for instance Agatha Christie wrote I think it was six other novels under a pseudonym because she wanted them to be, they were more like psychological novels, not necessarily right. ones where only one died. And I think she wanted people to assess them as like just novels in their own right. right. Possibly with not like Agatha an eye Christie to, novels. Exactly. Yeah. So I think she did see the like Agatha Christie brand at the time mm, as mm. like, n- not that they were like pot boilers or anything, but just... No. Yeah, they they were very much like in the lower end of the market, as it were. Yeah. So I wonder if like Gone Girl will be like a kind of Patricia Highsmithy sort of mm. book in 20 years time. Because I totally I- agree. Yeah. And not least because so I've been I'd not read Sharp Objects before seeing the thing, but I've now been Me listening neither. to the audiobook. And there's loads more in the book about the like state of journalism at the time mm. and in the same way that Gone Girl's got a real like recession vibe to it mm-hmm, totally. um, you know they both lose their jobs and like move across the country and then live in like a McMansion that was partly abandoned because of the recession and stuff and how like the 
sort of this small town was has been affected by economic downturn and what it did to masculinity and all this kind of stuff so yeah there's loads in there that you're I think you're right with more distance people would be like this was incredibly smart totally and I just think that character is such a vivid character Mm. Amy and Gone Girl and she's like so horrific and there are quotes that I just still think about all the time like when she's like you think you'd be happy with some nice midwestern American girl I'd kill for you you know like all that stuff it's just Mm. so anyway obviously the connection the point for those who are really confused that I didn't say up front is that Gillian Flynn the author of the book Sharp Objects also wrote Gone Girl I'm not just talking about Gone Um, Girl for no reason I just think it's really interesting as well that Sharp Objects was her first novel it was her debut novel Mm. which it's just amazing to me because I think it's so accomplished. Like now that I'm listening to her actual words as well as having seen how it was adapted for the screen. And like, this is amazing that she wrote yeah. this as her first like full length novel. So it's been adapted for HBO by uh, Jean-Marc Vallée. Mm-hmm. Is that his, the director's name who did Big Little Lies, which we were huge fans of, mm-hmm. loved Big Little Lies. And it's very kind of like moody and atmospheric. So it differs from Gone Girl in that it's not actually a super plot heavy or at least plot-driven story, or at least in adaptation, it doesn't come across that way. And it's definitely been done as a kind of like atmospheric, stylized thing. Um, and it's eight, eight episodes. And how spoilery are we going to go, Caroline, as we discuss these eight episodes? Because we've both seen it all. I think we should go full spoiler, because I think it's difficult to talk about it without accidentally putting one's foot in it yes um i'm so so glad because i completely agree i really would quite like to get into the meat of the twists and turns of this but i guess for those people who are going to tune out of this discussion in that case i would say it's worth watching and it's also worth sticking with if the first couple of episodes don't grab you because Mm -hmm. they didn't grab me and i actually only carried on watching it because my boyfriend really forced me to and then i found the final three or so episodes really thrilling and really uh really delight like they're really horrible and they're really depressing Mm. in lots of ways but they're really kind of like delightful to watch at the same time because uh, yeah I mean I won't say any more than that but I I would recommend it I would also say as a point of information for British listeners you can watch all of this on now tv which you can sign up for a free 14 day trial of and then cancel without paying anything so if you uh, are someone who sometimes struggles to know where you can watch big American things, if you don't have Sky, that is where you can watch this on Now TV. Great point of information. So full spoiler review. Yeah, I, as I said just then, like, I don't know how you felt about it, whether it really did grip you from the beginning. But the premise is that, you know, as we said up top, that Camille, the Amy Adams lead journalist character, who's like kind of a cliche of a like, jessica jones style like alcoholic workaholic Mm. traumatic family or home life person she goes back to her hometown to solve this crime and in doing so has to like move in with her mom and like reopen old wounds and she's kind of like driving around and drunk a little bit drunk and like going to different bars and interviewing people about the disappearance and very quickly becomes murder of two girls over different at different times not the same time in her hometown and I found those first few episodes where she's kind of like doing that investigative journalistic work really tropey so much really derivative all the stuff of her like laying out all her little miniature bottles of alcohol on her Mm -hmm. motel her scummy motel bed and all Mm -hmm. of that kind of stuff and like all of the sort of 
functioning alcoholic coping mechanisms it shows of like her swigging vodka and then swigging mouthwash and stuff like that yeah I was thinking like why is everyone on social media raving about this it's really derivative totally I felt the same and like I just sort of felt like what's the point of this story and before I even watched it I also came with preconceptions about it because I like I said had quite a negative immediate reaction to Gone Girl where I felt really cheated by the the narrative twist in Mm. Gone Girl and after that twist the book like completely goes off the rails into these like really absurd directions which I think are actually quite brilliant but they are super absurd And I kind of felt like this was a very artsy, very serious HBO program that I highly suspected at some point was going to completely go off the rails. So Mm. I was a bit like, why are you you asking me to take this seriously? Because I think something really mental is going to happen. And at that point, I'll be like, well, why wasn't this a bit funnier at least? Why couldn't we have had some more fun? It's not funny at all. Which is how how I felt about Hereditary because it does just halfway through go completely bonkers. And I'm like, well, why did this have to be so depressing then? Why couldn't it have been a bit more like a fun horror film? But the weirder it got, the more I actually really loved it. And it, and you're right, it never got funny, but it, for me, moved into more of a crazy horror zone. Yeah, it does. It goes so dark that you're like, actually, was this frame narrative of her being an investigative journalist actually just minor? Like this was, I mean, it's necessary to give the impetus for her to return to the town. Mm-hmm. Or even a red herring. Yeah, maybe. Like Mm. maybe it's a way of throwing you off the scent of what's actually happening because it's so tropey that you're like, oh, well, okay, well, let's suspect the like father figure or like let's suspect the sheriff in a classic Agatha Christie style twist. And like it throws you off the scent quite a lot of like what is actually happening. Although it's not like super dependent on you not suspecting the person who did it. That wouldn't matter if you did, you'd still enjoy it. But I think in a way it's almost like because you're not when you watch a horror film you kind of think things to yourself like I mean this isn't the solution to 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 sharp objects but you think like maybe it's split personality or like maybe yeah you jump to those conclusions whereas when it's like some a more traditional detective thing you like always suspect the man and you always suspect you know someone in a position of trust to the victim and like all this kind of stuff and I loved that kind of like suddenly just went into like really weird claustrophobic psychologically terrifying terrain halfway yeah so just to give you a bit of background about Camille's family like her mum is really controlling and psychotic sometimes and she lives in this like picture perfect colonial mansion and she's married again and has Camille had a younger sister who died and she's very still like emotionally repressed about her grief about that and uh, her her mother has like since had another daughter who Camille doesn't even really know at the beginning like she mm-hmm. actually meets her loads in the first episode without realizing that it's her mm-hmm. and it's only at the end that there's always like this reveal that like oh right that was your sister that you were talking to the whole time mm-hmm. and so yeah it really really retreats into this like family psychological horror Mm-hmm. in a way that I wasn't expecting at all. But then I actually went back and watched the first episode again after I'd watched the whole thing because I got really obsessed with this and I read a lot of like screen grab by screen grab deconstructions of it as well. And yeah, I, w- I went on Tumblr again for the first time <laughs> in a long time because of this show. It started to give me real get out vibes actually, the first episode on my rewatch because I don't know, the first time I watched it, I was like, right, fine. So she's from a like really posh family that she hates. 
mm-hmm. whatever that's just part of her kind of tropey backstory I'm sure mm-hmm. to like give her a chip on her shoulder but then when you rewatch it you're like oh this house is evil and the fact that her mum has this like black woman servant who she doesn't ever make eye contact with but who's like always in the background of the shots mm-hmm. and stuff are like oh right so yeah they were telling us at the beginning that this house and this woman were bad news but I wasn't really paying attention because as you say the like investigative journalism thing is sort of a red herring totally and you know full spoilers for the final episode ahead the final twist is of course is like you know the phone calls coming from within the house and like you always expect the personal history of the of the detective in these situations and their and their crime to be somehow related sometimes metaphorically sometimes literally Mm. but in this one it's literally just like oh remember your evil family yeah they did the murders too (laughs) and that's the that's the final twist but I thought it was really cleverly done because the final episode is basically like Camille realizing that the root of all this is that her mother is obsessed with kind of like caring for Mm. her children as long as they're vulnerable and in her control Munchausen's by proxy is the name for it and it's also a central plot device in the bridge yeah which is interesting that's another come into the cultural consciousness of a kind of like weird crime solution yeah and it's so interesting to me as like a woman's crime and like a domestic crime that like it's a crime of caring too much yes I've yet to see any portrayal of like a man with Munchausen's by proxy do they even get it like who knows completely and for me I'm really um as me and Caroline were talking about this before the show but I've become really obsessed with doll's houses lately and the doll's house features very prominently in this both literally in the solving of the crime and kind of metaphorically as a way to show the like claustrophobia of Mm. the household and the desire to control other people like dolls and like be kind of maternalistic towards the doll but also like be in complete control and how that's like really claustrophobic for the other people in the house and in the seventh or eighth episode I think it might be the seventh episode I I can't remember but in, in some of the final climactic scenes the house begins to that level of claustrophobia is so intense in the real house as well as the miniaturized version you know the doll's house has the same wallpaper that's on the walls mm. and the same furniture and you know it's an exact replica this doll's house but the real house becomes that intense scary prison as as Camille and Amma her younger sister are like sucked of the ability to care for themselves by yeah. their mum poisoning them and that's just really scary to me and it was like suddenly watching a a horror sequence like there was no way out of it really felt like there was no way out of that situation for them Mm. and I was really terrified something else I picked up on my rewatch of the first episode was that when Amma first shows her Camille the dollhouse Camille's room isn't there there's Mm. like a just a gap there's like it shows you the hallway in the same shot that you see the actual real hallway of the house and then the door that she goes through into her old bedroom but in the doll's house it's just a gap there's nothing Mm. there which after what you find out at the end of the eighth episode you're like Amma is a psychopath who thinks her sister is worth nothing Mm. I don't know it it gives it gives you all kind of shivers I also wonder if she wasn't allowed in the room because she's really obsessive about trying to get Camille to let her into the room and her mum doesn't like it when she goes in there. But yeah, I was obsessed with the doll's house the whole way through. So I kept saying to, because of the, like, I because I'm trying to work on a piece about miniature houses separately. So I kept turning to Nick the whole time we were watching it and being like, the doll's house 
is the solution to this crime because they mm. keep showing it to you telegraphing yeah. that the doll's house is and i just felt that it was going to go beyond the metaphorical and the final connection between the doll's house and the crime and the real house is just so aesthetically perfect that it sent a full shiver down my spine you mean um, the floor yeah so basically that obviously as i don't know why i'm explaining it as though listeners at this point will not already know but they the two things they keep telegraphing is that amma is in love with this bloody doll's house Mm -hmm. she keeps taking it you know when they move out of the town she takes it with her and everything the unsolved crime the unsolved element of the crime is that they never found the missing teeth of the girls who died because all their teeth had been removed and they never found where they went and another piece of information we have is that their mother is obsessed with her ivory floor yeah and somehow all those things are telegraphed quite heavily both visually and in dialogue throughout the whole thing. Mm. And yet it's done subtly enough that you never think the teeth are the ivory floor of the doll's in the, house. Of they the doll's the house. You never make floor, that connection yeah. in your mind until the very last moments. Uh, there, and be, I think because I was so obsessed with the doll's house, there was a point where right in the final episode, they show the floor again for like the mm. 90th time. And I turned to Nick and I was like, oh my god the teeth are in the doll's house the teeth are in the doll's house and it just gave me a full body shiver i just found it so pleasurable and so great and it kind of was fun even though it wasn't funny in the end i thought it's fun in the sense that a well-constructed mystery is always fun like that feeling of like a piece of clockwork clicking into place exactly it's a really satisfying feeling even if it's horrific the actual yes. like when you step back for a second you're like she was pulling dead girl's teeth out and putting them in her doll's house yes um, and they give you a really cliffhangery ending where camille finds camille's moved away from the town they think that the mum did it they've taken Amma away they're living together she for some reason has to like you know find something missing from the doll's house so goes to put it back and then finds the teeth mm. floor and Amma turns around and says don't tell mama and it's like a cliffhanger and that makes you feel like wait what yeah Uh, and i get the impression it's more thoroughly gone over in the book but what they do do is give you little clips in the credit sequence where you see amma committing the murders but just like tiny little quick like two second flashes yeah Yeah. and the actress is bloody incredible yeah she's really good she's really scary she's Um, terrifying and the the in a kind of shining way that they kind of like don't don't pull until the final moment um it it just really click everything into place about that character Mm. and it worked incredibly well for me something i wanted to bring up as well this idea of the show like telegraphing you stuff Mm. one thing that it does is it it messes with point of view a lot Mm. so it shows you and i didn't realize this until about episode five that sometimes you're seeing things from camille's point of view like a slightly hazy flickery alcoholics point of view and that's why you get a lot of like flickering lights Mm. a lot of text on the screen Mm. says things that you're not expecting so I first I didn't spot this for ages um and then I noticed that her car radio like the words where it would say the name of the station and like the numbers keep saying things like wrong or no or Mm. things like that and lots of uh, like road signs keep changing and shifting and that kind of thing. And then I went and like Googled this extensively online and there's a really hundreds good... Of them. Hundreds of them, sorry, yeah, in the show. There, there's actually hundreds of them in the show. And like there's a really good post, which I will find and link, where someone's like screen grabbed every single one and like written what they think it means at that mm. moment in the show, mm. um, which if you've watched the whole thing is very, very enjoyable to read. But yeah, so the... And then at other times 
you're shown think the same scene but not from Camille's point of view and the signs all look fine and it's all as you would expect so mm-hmm. there is that sort of in the same way that Gone Girl is very much predicated on the idea of like the unreliable narrator and things not being all there seems the idea that like you're seeing a first person unreliable view of something and then also not is very interesting and a really like clever piece of direction I think completely yeah so I really really enjoyed it and it was kind of my perfect stopover until Big Little Lies season two which I'm (laughs) really excited for um so yeah yeah definitely watch it A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash boast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So now we're going to talk about Disenchantment, which is an animated fantasy series created for Netflix by Matt Groening, who also made The Simpsons and Futurama. It follows the adventures of Princess Bean, who is voiced by Broad City's Abby Jacobson, who likes drinking, gambling and getting into trouble as she grapples with the arrival of a personal demon and an impending royal marriage. Yeah, a literal personal demon. Yeah, it's very like... um, you know, in Mulan, yeah. she has like the tiny demon sent by her ancestors or whatever, or the spirit. It's very much that kind of thing. Yeah. So there's like almost a female empowerment A plot, as you say, because, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Ooh. I cannot contain Ooh. my disgust for that. Um, because Bean is fleeing an unwanted marriage and, you know, so it's very much, she's very much the lead and she's very much mm-hmm. escaping oppressive structures and whatever but it's all in this kind of like fantasy landscape like fairyland world the kingdom is called dreamland or Mm -hmm. something and then there's like um a little moment where she says like oh i wish i could just live somewhere happy and then it cuts to like elf wood or something and it's Mm -hmm. like all these elves which i thought was just like some like extended itchy and scratchy style joke yeah and then becomes like a full b plot and I only watched one episode, but the first episode is like over over 35 minutes long or something. It's like very long for an animated comedy. And yeah, I mean, it really dragged. I don't think we really needed all that backstory about like, which is basically just like elf, but with like slightly darker jokes about yes. like the elf world and how they're all sickly sweet all the time. And even their public elf hangings are like joyful and squeaky. That didn't work for me. I mean... 
a lot of this didn't work for me. <laughs> yeah, I genuinely hated it. And I don't say that lightly because normally in the things that we watch for seriously, I can find something to enjoy about mm. them because we tend not to watch things just to slate no. them because that's not really what we do. But on paper, I thought this would be a reasonable bet, but actually it, like, it viscerally affected me wow. with dislike. I really didn't like it. And then when I was yeah like I I hate the sort of female empowerment thing of it I hate it feels the very fact false, that, she, that because feels a so lot false. of the jokes are like a little sexist I don't know I'm gonna yeah. struggle to think of examples to prove my point now but the joke of her being a woman who can fight kind of inherently seems a bit lazy mm. to me and like and I hate the fact that she is sort of like portrayed as cooler because she likes gambling and hard drinking yeah. like that's so cliched and cool girl gone girl cool girl yeah it, it is a cool girl thing but also like um i don't know there's i feel there are so many cleverer deconstructions of fairy tales like fucking shrek is a more interesting breakdown of like yeah. gender Duh. and patriarchal norms than than this shrek is. is canon so, for a reason exactly like I don't know the whole like kick-ass princess thing is very much been done yeah, totally. and yet somehow I felt like this show was offering it up as if it like hey here's an amazing idea we've just thought of which is what if princess but cool I was like no yeah. go away all of the elf stuff is boring yeah and I could do without it yeah and for me like the real strength of an episode of the Simpsons is like I know this kind of got it more and more intense as the show went on but you, obviously you have those first five minutes that are like very messy in a Simpsons episode where you can tell they've like got the original plot and then they've like worked backwards to a weird mm -hmm. beginning. So there's all these red herrings at the beginning of a Simpsons episode where like the first five minutes are like totally six different directions and then suddenly Homer arrives at work or whatever and the episode actually begins. But they were like really tightly constructed episodes mm, and very much you know, so. the constraints of having to be you no know, more than 20 minutes a time like is part of, I think, why those shows are so good. And so like, you know. And having to have an ad break in the mm. middle. I really felt that actually Netflix has not done Matt Groening any favours. No. I think he's someone who needs restrictions. Yeah. To make his stuff work. This is very messy. And to me, I was watching it like, why would I ever want, like, I can imagine the pitch meeting for this where they're like, this is an epic sprawling fantasy like Game of Thrones, but with all the humor mm. and like dark jokes of The Simpsons, it's like going to be perfect for that millennial, sardonic, binge watching generation of like men who want some, want, you know, all the humor and stuff of that with all the kind of like weird epic fantasy of Game of Thrones. And I'm like, why, why would I want what what is for a reason very traditionally like a 20 minute comedy format to have all the bizarre twists and turns of game of thrones that's just something that i don't think anyone actually wants even though you can make it sound like it's what they want like mm. it just felt like you know at the end there was a cliffhanger and i was like a literal cliffhanger <laughs> you know yeah. full cliche cliffhanger and um, I felt like I don't care what happens to these people and like the great thing yeah. about a lot of 20 minute animated comedies is that you end up back at the beginning and yes, it's like an exactly. endless it feels like a contained world yeah. yeah and like obviously there are lots of amazing animated comedies that that play with that trope or like break out of it completely so i'm not trying to say that that's this is a, that's a fundamental flaw of disenchantment it just doesn't work like what mm. they've tried to achieve is just like rambly and it's not very like the humor fundamentally is not, not very funny and it's not cutting edge like 
you know, it's not daring. Like, that's a difference between stuff that's like deliberately black and stuff that's edgy. And this is like tired, boring jokes that are, yes, deliberately black, but they're not edgy in any way. Like, it's not like... I don't know. It fails. But to... I, I crucially, I think it thinks it is. Yeah, edgy. exactly. And that is for me just death to yeah. any kind of humor. Totally. So um, like the cartoon hanging, which to me feels like very family guy, like very, mm-hmm. you know, like mid noughties in vibe. Like just doing that now is not, that's not edgy, yeah. even if it is like quite a, quite a visually shocking or unpleasant joke it's just like yeah we've we've done comedy like this now and it's just kind of like boring to watch yeah that's exactly how I felt about it that and I saw um some people tweeting about the fact that like there isn't a single female director involved in any of these episodes Mm. or indeed I think even like maybe there's a second season slated and there like isn't a single one attached for that either I have to I haven't like fully researched this but I saw people saying I mean it does feel quite boys clubby as a that does make sense to me that like and I don't know maybe this is an interpretation too far but I feel like the group of dudes that got super successful in the 90s with the Simpsons think they've still got it and can now do whatever they they want because they made the simpsons and it was really good to start with and it did make a ton of money and it was like so culturally significant they think now that they own animated humor and the world has moved on and they have not and what they've made now is not good yeah it's a shame because i do think that if it was approached in the same way that the simpsons had been approached in the beginning Mm -hmm. as though like great you've got a great you've got an interesting idea let's like with loads of rigor and discipline make this good then it could have been great. Like there's nothing fundamentally yeah. wrong with the idea of what they're doing. No, it just has it just not has at all. fallen apart. And stuff like, you know, Archer is super popular for a reason. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't watched a ton of it, but I do like what I've seen. It's funny and good at deconstructing like contemporary masculinity and that kind of thing. And then like Bojack Horseman has a massive following for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, they managed to make people care about it has real a characters. A man with a horse's head and like struggles with mental totally. health and all and of And they this. flesh them out despite them being yeah. like all of these characters are visual jokes or like, you know, jokes in dialogue. They're not characters. They're just stand mm. placings for whatever the punchline is that is happening next. And that's I mean it is the episode it is the first episode and sometimes these do think these things do need to develop over time. But for me I was just like, why would I why would I keep watching this? I just yeah. couldn't think of a it's, single reason. It's sufficient it's sufficiently bad that I didn't even want to try and watch another one. Also I watched the first two minutes maybe two weeks ago and mm-hmm. was like, oh like got distracted and was like, okay, I'll come back to that in a bit. And I just so didn't want just to go did. back to it, even only after the first two minutes. I was like, oh really can't be bothered with this. Yeah. So a, a rare thumbs down completely from us i think for disenchantment boo Boo, indeed so last week we were recommended the 2010 film beginners which is directed by mike mills who directed 20th century women which is one of my favorite films i think of the last couple of years Mm. you saw it and enjoyed it too didn't you? yeah absolutely it I think was recommended to us in part because we both have dogs and um, (laughs) the lead character played by Ewan McGregor has a a Jack Russell who doesn't so much speak, but is kind of subtitled for the audience. So you've got a kind of semi-talking dog in it. And the essential premise is that Ewan McGregor's mother passes away 
it's set in 2003, by the way. So it is set seven years before it's actually yeah. released. Um, so it's like a semi-period film. And um, after after Hugh McGregor's mother passed away, his father, who's Christopher Plummer, embarks on life as an out gay man, which is, yeah, that's the, that's the immediate premise, right? Yeah, absolutely. And the idea being that, you know, he's really near the end of his life and he just wants to go like, fuck it, I shall be who I am for whatever time I yeah, have Yeah, he wants to be a, a gay person in practice as well as in theory. Yeah, exactly. Which is really interesting. And also the period that it's set is an interesting decision as well. Like 2003 being just before the kind of mainstream acceptance in a lot mm. of places of mm. things like gay marriage. Yeah, it's so a very on, interesting you know? period in which to set the film. Yeah, exactly. So like, I'm pretty sure, you know, America didn't get equal marriage, did it, until President Obama started talking about it after 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is at the point when like, for a lot of people, the LGBT movement has been normalized, but not in a kind of officially state recognized way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really, it's it's kind of, it's very different to 20th century women, isn't it? It's like, yes. which I... Oh, I meant to say, apparently this is based on Mike Mills's actual real life experience. Oh, how funny. Like his father did come out really late in life. Yeah. I There were parts of it that I found really charming, actually, and really enjoyed. And it's also very like stylish the whole way through. Yes. One part that I wanted to ask you your opinion on was the the meeting um, between Ewan McGregor and his love interest. Oh, the French woman. Yes. Yeah, I wasn't really into that as a relationship. Yeah, neither was I, but I found that that meeting scene very interesting. And I I found their dynamic a little bit manic pixie dream girl. That was why I say I wasn't really into that, because the fact that she's French is like most of her personality. Yeah, it's like a kind (laughs) of weird, quirky thing. And they meet at a a dress up party mm-hmm. in which um it's Oliver, you and McGregor. Oliver, yeah. Oliver is dressed as basically Sigmund Freud. I can't even remember what she's dressed as, but like a sort of Victorian y vibe. Something cutesy ruffled. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember. And she she lies down on his couch to be analysed, but she's got laryngitis so she doesn't speak. Mm. And their whole meeting is based around this quirky idea where the woman is like literally silenced. <laughs> yes. And I just found that like And in so... a vulnerable position. Like yeah. As, yeah. And it's like a joke. It's all a big joke, which is why it's so manic pixie dream girl. And she's like writing on her pad and stuff. And then they have a dance where she's like kind of signaling with her hands instead of speaking. But his like immediate attraction to her in that context just seems so funny to me. So it's like there are like parts to the film where I was like, okay, I'm not like all in on this but the bit I, I, I the bit I did find really charming was Christopher Plummer's character yeah. I think he is amazing in this film like, it was a great performance so was good. it not an Oscar winning performance I'm not actually sure it definitely was a very highly praised one um I think no he did he won yeah yeah he he won best supporting actor for it yeah so which is why is it best supporting actor i think he's the star yeah, sorry I mean, this is my my routine it's like always, anger it's with always the way so, um, hollywood categorizes so this, subjective but. isn't it and it's just i think it just depends on what they put you forward for like essentially no it's not i remember find, reading up on this and you remember that film with dev patel called lion yeah yeah so it's it's um, relative minutes on screen. Oh, is it? Yeah. So Dev Patel was only nominated for Best Supporting Actor for that film, despite being... The main character. Um, the main character. <laughs> because the child version of him had, had so relatively much so much screen time. Right. 
Um, so actually, neither of them qualified for best actor. Right. Because well, I think your answer then, I guess. It's, some, it's something like, I, th- I think you have to have like the majority of the screen time or something. Um, who the hell sits there with like a stopwatch and measures these things? I do not know. Well, that's but, the kind of thing yeah. that I would get like quite sick pleasure out of, actually. But yes. Yeah, it's a stupid rule, and that, I think Christopher Plummer then. was cheated by it. But, but he anyway. would never have. I just don't think he would have won in the. I actually don't know what the performances were in that year. But would he have won in a best actor? This was not. I feel like a significant enough release at the time. Probably for not. No, everyone to have awarded it that. Not though. I guess that's not the point. It shouldn't be about how big the movie is. But, but, but it is though, isn't it? That is how yeah. how things work. Um, but yeah, overall, I'm glad to have watched this. I'm not sure I would have seen it otherwise if we hadn't been recommended. No. Um, because it's kind I of think... a film I've been weirdly curious about as well for a while because I do see the posters. I don't mm. know why. Like I feel like when I'm googling like tropes, it comes up. <laughs> it's probably not a great thing, but yeah. I would like. I don't know if this is a trope, but I would like it to be a trope. Sort yeah. of like older person coming out film. Is that a trope? I feel like there's definitely another one, and now I like can't remember. I would like Nancy Myers to make one if she hasn't already. Yeah, she not can, already. That can she like make a can she make a premise. Diane Keaton comes out late in life film? Yeah, yes. I would be so here for that. Um that would be brilliant. Yeah. Um so Anna, you've got an idea about what we're going to do next time. Yeah, this is just because I know that I couldn't probably couldn't justify doing this as a main <laughs> section on seriously, but I have not seen this, but a lot of people I know have sort of been tweeting about it. And I've just been on holiday with my friend who's obsessed with this particular program. And I was like, will you watch that with me? And she was like, no, I'm saving it for the plane. I was like, oh, okay, fine. Um, So it's basically Celebrity MasterChef featuring Gemma Collins, uh, which is just something I want to see really badly. So for people who don't know, who's Gemma Collins? Uh, Gemma Collins is a reality TV star who was on The Only Way is Essex. Or um, Towie. Or Towie, aka Towie. And she's um, uh, extremely funny, extremely confident, quite abrasive, voluptuous, blonde woman who I think she became famous really in Towie for the scene where she's been rejected by someone who's then been like spreading lies about her. And she like get, gets up on the top of a swimming pool and like opens her kind of robe and reveals her squ- swimming costume and says, you ain't ever going to get this candy. <laughs> Take a good look. And she's the she's like min, almost famous in the uk for so well she is famous in the uk but she's like got a kind of cult status because of so many different things like the time she wore like a really hideous like shoulder padded orange dress <laughs> oh, yes. um the fact that she does all these videos on her instagrams that start hi girls uh the fact that she went on celebrity big brother and was just absolutely mental and uh the fact that she calls memes memes Yes, that's the part that I find most ridiculous about her because I'm pretty sure she she definitely does it on purpose. Yeah, I think at first she definitely didn't, but because she it like came from this video where she was like, "Hi girls, just want to say thanks everyone for all the memes, thanks for this," <laughs> and like everyone was like, "That's hilarious." But yeah, so she's I think, and she also recently released a book and then like had to do an interview with someone who oh, hadn't yes. read the book because they hadn't been given a copy of the book, and it was just like the most excruciating and hilarious interview where Gemma Collins was like. I don't really want to talk about this if you haven't read the book and the PR is like having a meltdown. And she's like, you say in your book, blah. And she's like, do I? I don't remember that bit. It's like very it's, visibly it's a, a ghost written book. It's um, an absolutely incredible interview. Like I saw so, so many people tweeting about it and I really wanted someone, maybe they did and I just didn't see it, but someone to write a really insightful essay being like this Gemma Collins interview 
exposes the reality of publishing today yeah, totally. because it absolutely did like she had not even read her own book really yeah it was clearly like ghostwritten or something and yet the prs um, had obviously been so nervous about it that they hadn't mm-hmm. actually sent it out to the people who needed to receive a copy yeah then- I've, I've been going through a, in a way a tiny bit of this myself because i've reviewed um this new memoir by steve jobs's daughter which is actually already published like you can walk into a shop and buy it but the publishers have embargoed it for two weeks after its publication date so my review is only running this weekend is it really bad well it's not even really bad it's just really boring and i think so they want um, people to think there's a salacious secret in there that they can't read in a review isn't really but the stupid thing is that it came there wasn't such an embargo in america so like the new york times is run like an entire extract of it, a huge interview with the author, which contains all of the like three facts about Steve Jobs that you didn't know before you read this book. And because the internet exists, you can literally find these things out with like a two second Google. That's so, so funny. It was so bizarre. Like I had to sign this massive contract and so did the newspaper and stuff to say that they wouldn't publish my review early or anything like that. And I just, so I was like all hyped for this big tell all book and then there's nothing in it. Um, so yeah. You are right though that, that Gemma Collins interviews reveals so much. It re- reveals the three prongs of the problem, right? Which is mm. like celebrities are given undue uh, platform and allowed to like not write books and not even read the books that they write for money because it's a money making machine. Mm-hmm. The problem in the PR cycle where they're like trying to fudge the actual quality of the thing from getting out to the public because their whole point is to like try like and get people to buy the public it. into yeah. buying it without knowing what they're buying yeah, yeah and not giving the journalist the the information that she needs to actually conduct a proper interview because they don't want a proper interview they want a pr stunt and three the magazine that was willing to send a journalist to do an interview about a book Under that those the journalist conditions, hasn't, yeah. hasn't read and yeah. like is, is i don't know it's just like three three it, separate industries that are all dying in their own weird way like just colliding mm. um so yeah i did find that fascinating but yet again we have rambled off the <laughs> we have indeed so the point is we're going to watch Cele- Gemma Collins on Celebrity Mastership and we will report back next week normally we're so tight but this week we've just been like <laughs> absolutely Blah. all over the place sorry yes um but I'm really excited for Celebrity Masterchef so I love Masterchef I've loved it since I was a small child and Lloyd Grossman was presenting it <sighs> and I've just so as you say like because we've essentially made watching TV our job, I therefore cannot justify watching MasterChef all year round no, when I'm not writing about it or anything. I'm going to so. do it with a big bowl of pasta. That's what I'm yeah, going to do. Yeah, you have to eat pasta while you're watching yeah. MasterChef. It is yeah, the law. It's the rule. Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you've enjoyed on the show. We love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed. Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. 
time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. <laughs>